Amen. Friends, it's good to see you. Thank you for being with us today. And let me invite you to open your Bible now, if you have it, to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read from the gospel according to Matthew's story about Jesus and Jesus calling disciples to be with him. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. May God add his blessing to the reading and the understanding and the doing of his holy word. Friends, I want to start this morning with a parable about discipleship. It's called A Bike Ride with Jesus. Uh, the author is unknown. I used to think of God as my observer, my evaluator, keeping track of things uh, that I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell. He was out there in the ether, uh, sort of like a president or a judge. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I didn't really know him. But later on, I met Jesus, and things changed. It got personal. It began to seem as though life was like a bike ride. But it was one of those special bikes, you know, a tandem bike, the kind that has two sets of handlebars and two sets of seats, one in the front and one in the back. And I noticed that on the bike ride of life, Jesus was in the back helping me pedal. And he was really, really good at it. Uh, he sure helped me a lot. And I would steer the bike wherever I wanted us to go. And the truth be told, I liked being in control, but I wasn't very good at it because I would wreck the bike from time to time. And when I was steering, it was usually boring, although at least it was predictable. I don't remember exactly when he suggested it, but one day we switched seats. I moved to the back and, and Jesus moved up to the front. And I'll tell you, life has not been the same since. Jesus makes things exciting. You know, he knows these delightful long cuts up mountain passes and, and through rocky places. And sometimes it's slow and leisurely. But other times we ride at breakneck speed and it's all I can do just to hang on. Even though it felt like madness, Jesus kept saying, pedal. And I was anxious. I, I'd say, well, where are you taking me? And he laughed. And then he said, do you trust me? And I would say, well, I'm trying to. And after a while, I was glad to have left my boring life and to be on this new adventure. And when I was scared, he would reassure me. And when I was tired, he would do all the pedaling and I could just ride he took me to meet people who had gifts that I needed, gifts like acceptance and healing and joy. And after I had received them, Jesus said, now you have to give these gifts away. And I didn't want to but because I enjoyed the gifts so much. But I began to give the gifts away and something strange happened. I ended up with more of those gifts than I previously had had. I'll be honest, at first it was hard. To trust him. Jesus is a little crazy on the bike. You know, I thought he was going to wreck it. Uh, and we did have a few close calls. 
But uh, Jesus knows these wonderful bike secrets. He's really good at, at bending the bike around sharp corners and at jumping over high rocks. And so for my part, I'm learning how to trust. I'm learning to quit worrying and to pedal in the strangest places. I'm enjoying the ride a lot, the, the cool breeze on my face and my constant companion right in front of me. Some days I even close my eyes while we ride and on those days when I don't think I can do it anymore, he turns, looks back at me, and he smiles, and he says, just keep pedaling. Just keep pedaling. Friends, welcome to week three of our series. It's called Changed. During August, we're talking about the reality of change in our lives, about how we respond to it and how we prepare for it. In week one of our series, we said that change is our reality. It's the way God has made the world. The sun rises and the sun sets, and things change every day. And so we can resist it, we can deny it, we can be mad about it, but that's not going to change the fact that change is a reality. And so even though change is inevitable, being changed is optional. It's up to us how we respond. In week two, we said that growth requires change, and Mr. Hermit Crab reminded us that as the hermit crab grows, he needs to change houses in order to live, in order to thrive. And that if we are willing to change, we can also grow and thrive. And for today, week three, I want to talk with you about this idea that as disciples of Jesus, our job is to follow him through the changes of our lives. And so if you're here today, and if you can honestly say that you're on the front seat of the bike of your life, I'm going to invite you today to consider the back seat instead. By the way, a shout out to Blackwater Bike Shop on 221 for loaning us this tandem bike. So if you have any bike needs, go see Davey at Blackwater Bike Shop. They will take good care of you. All right, so friends, I want to start with some lessons from the tandem bike ride. What can we learn from the parable? How do we get ourselves ready to accept the change that God has for us? So here are four lessons from a tandem bike ride, lessons in preparing for change. Lesson number one, it can be hard to accept the back seat. How many of you know it's hard to accept riding in the back seat? We like to be in charge, don't we? We like to be in, we like to be in the front. Let me, let me be in charge. Here's the problem with us in the front is we're not that good. We're not that we usually wreck it one sooner or later. We will wreck the bike. Our vision is not as good as Jesus' vision. We cannot see our future as well as he can see it. And so the invitation is to accept his power and his authority for your life and take a seat in the back. Secondly, the second lesson, our job is to pedal, to keep going. You remember from physics class, Newton's first law of motion says an object in motion tends to stay in motion. If you keep pedaling, you will be better able to accept changes as they come versus if you slam on the brakes every time something happens that you don't like. It will be much harder to accept the changes. So keep pedaling. Lesson number three, the point is the ride itself. How many of you like to ride bikes? Have you noticed that the journey is just as fun as the destination, that it's the riding of the bike itself that is the enjoyable part? And so the same is true with following Jesus. Following Jesus is its own reward. He gives our lives meaning. He makes them count. He allows us to contribute to the lives of others. And so uh, the point is the ride itself. Fourth lesson, we are invited 
to trust. Uh, we know intellectually, I think, that God has something good for us in the future. Uh, what's hard then is this emotional and spiritual experience of letting go, of controlling our lives, of surrendering, and saying, okay, Jesus, I'll do it your way. I'll follow where you want me to go. And so the question for today is, friends, as we think about change, as we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus through our lives, the most important question you can answer is this. Are you willing to be led? Are you willing to be led? Are you willing to let Jesus lead you in your life? Are you willing to sit on the back so that Jesus can sit on the front and can steer you where he wants you to go? By the way, take note that Jesus never forces anyone to be a disciple. He, never, he will not make you sit on the back seat, okay? But he will invite you. Jesus never forces anyone, but he invites everyone to be his disciple. And so the question is, are you willing to be led? The story goes that Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he was inviting people to be his disciples. And he uh, said to Peter and Andrew, he said, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And the story says that they left their nets and they began to follow Jesus. And uh, just then Jesus went and found two other brothers named James and John, and they had a fishing business with their father, Zebedee, and he called them, and the story says immediately they left their nets and left their boat and their father, and they followed him. And the significance of this story is sometimes lost on us because, one, it's familiarity, some of us have heard it a lot. And second, because of its brevity. It just it kind of flashes across the page so fast, and we say, oh, that was easy. Jesus called them, and they went, hey, no big deal. Uh, what we don't get to hear is the behind-the-scenes conversation. I want you to imagine the talk that James and John had with their father, Zebedee. Okay, so Jesus comes to James and John. Hey, guys, I want you to be my disciples, uh, but you're going to have to leave everything. You're going to have to leave your home and, and your dad and your business and, and, uh, come and come and be with me instead. And so they said, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And so then they went to tell dad, hey, dad, we're going to go with this new rabbi, Jesus. Now, how do you suppose that went over with their father? <laughs> you're going to do what? You're going where? What do you mean you're leaving to go with this guy, Jesus? What about the business? What about the fishing business that you and I have built? This is a three-man operation. It doesn't work if it's just me. I've been training you since you were four years old to be fishermen. It's, it's your call. It's who you're supposed to be. I can't run this business by myself. Not only that, I'd like to retire in a few years. Hello? Who am I going to hand the business off to if you're not here to do it? And your mother... Your mother is going to be devastated when she finds out that you're leaving home to go do this. Friends, if you, we do it right, uh, following Jesus can be painful, and it can be hard. <clears throat> and there will be people in our lives who will be disappointed about that. And maybe most of all us, right? Maybe we are the most disappointed because we realize that we can no longer be in control, that we have to let go of control of our lives uh, I wonder if there has ever been a person who enjoys being told what to do, because I am not that person. I hate being told what to do. And so it is a struggle for me to be able to say, okay, Jesus, you call the shots. But that's the deal, friends. That's what we sign up for, is to be led. Are you willing to be led? Are you willing to be led? 
The most fundamental notion of Christian discipleship is being led. The most basic idea of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus is allowing him to lead you. Now, this is uh, confusing because in the evangelical church in America, we've made it into something else. In the evangelical church in the West, we have made discipleship asking Jesus into your heart. Okay? Now, is it that? Yes, it is. that's part of it, right? That's part of it. So please don't send me an angry email this week and say, oh, what do you mean the heart has nothing to do with it? No, heart has a lot to do with it, okay? But uh, that's not all. It's not only asking Jesus into our hearts. Because here's what I see. Some of us, we've asked Jesus into our heart, and then we've gone back to our comfortable pew, and we've put our feet up, and we continue to call the shots for our own life. But see, that doesn't work. Jesus is looking for fruit. He's looking at your life and my life, and he wants to see outward evidence of an inward transformation. So it's not enough to just ask Jesus into your heart and then just go do whatever it is you wanted to do anyway. If your life is not different before and after, then something's not quite right, my friends. Because when you let Jesus be the Lord of your life, everything changes. Everything changes. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially, but even also in John, the essential idea of discipleship is not asking Jesus into your heart. The essential idea of discipleship in the Gospels is come and follow me. Follow me, Jesus says. Over and over again, he says, follow me. In Matthew 8, Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In Mark 1, Jesus said, come follow me. I'll send you out to fish for people. In Mark 10, he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. In Luke 5, Jesus went out and met a tax collector named Levi, also known as Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, follow me, Jesus said to him. In Luke 14, Jesus said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In John 1, finding Philip, Jesus said to him, follow me. In John 10, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them. They follow me. John 12, Jesus said, whoever, must, uh, whoever serves me must follow me. Friends, the list goes on and on. Are you getting the picture? A am I making a case this morning? Am I making an argument? Okay, do you believe me that it's not ultimately just about asking Jesus into your heart? Okay, so ask Jesus into your heart, but then go where he calls you to go and follow after Jesus over and over the invitation is come and follow, which means the question is, are you willing to be led? Are you willing to be led? Are you willing to let Jesus call the shots to tell you where to go to show you his plans for your life? We're great at showing God our plans, right? Hey, God, here's what I want you to bless. Here's what I want you to do for me. And Jesus saying, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got plans for you. Are, are you open to them? Are you willing to hear them and do them? Are you willing to sit on the back seat of the bike so Jesus can be in the front? Now, when we hear this invitation, uh, I think sometimes we have a gut reaction. And our cynicism creeps in a little bit, and we say, okay, pastor, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to quit my job and sell my house and just get a pair of Birkenstocks and just start walking across the United States? Is that what you're saying, to follow Jesus? And the answer is, yeah, maybe, if, if God calls you to do that, you should do that. Uh, in fact, uh, my friend 
Tom tells the story about a man who actually did that. His name is Daryl Watson. Daryl is a playwright in New York City, and uh, he has a good job and a good life, uh, but he was restless. You know, you ever had that season in your life where he's sort of restless, searching for meaning? He wanted to know uh, what he was supposed to do with his life, what his mission was, and he couldn't figure out until one day he came across the story of a woman named Mildred Norman. In 1953, Mildred Norman became the Peace Pilgrim. Anybody remember Mildred Norman, the Peace Pilgrim? Yes. Okay, well done. Dan Lynch for the win. All right, so Mildred Norman is going to walk across the entire country for the sake of peace. Think back into history, what was happening in the United States and around the world in 1953. The Korean War was raging. Okay, so uh, the threat of nuclear attack was real for people. They were afraid, and Mildred said, hey, I can do something about that. I can bring people's attention to the cause of peace. And she is quite an inspiration because she did not just uh, walk for a little while. She walked for 28 years for peace. Okay, so Daryl hears this story, and he decides he's going to be the next peace pilgrim. He's going to go for it. He's going to walk across the country. So Daryl sold all of his possessions, and he cashed out his bank account, and he sent an email to all of his friends. Hey, I'm going to do this. I've got a picture for you of Daryl and of Mildred. <clears throat> and so Daryl is the new peace pilgrim. There's Mildred on the left. There's Daryl on the right. So Daryl set, sets out to walk for six months for peace. Can you guess how long Daryl walked for? Three days. Daryl walked for three days. On the first day, he realized, boy, it sure is cold at night. On the second day, he realized hunger is a problem if you don't have food to eat. And on the third day, he realized hospitality from strangers is not quite as abundant as he had hoped. So he found himself sleeping on a playground, and he heard a voice say to him, hey, buddy, get up. You're going to freeze to death. And it was the police. And he thought to himself, aha, I bet the jail has food to eat. I bet the jail has a warm place for me to sleep. But they wouldn't arrest him. They wouldn't take him even to the jail to help. And so he realized he had made a gigantic mistake. And Daryl quit his journey after three days. And he got in front of a computer and he sent out another mass email to all his friends. And it said, peace pilgrim down. Peace pilgrim down. You see, so some of us, we hear the call, don't we, and we, uh, we assume, well, the only authentic way, the only real way to follow Jesus is, is if I, like, sell everything, quit my job, and just start walking. And if Jesus calls you to do that, by all means, friends, do that. Please, don't, I, I'm not here to talk you out of it. But I, it's my experience that almost certainly God is not calling you to do that. God is calling you to follow Jesus right where you already live and work and hang out. Uh, you see, insisting that we do what Daryl did is a, what we call a straw man argument. You're setting up a false choice. Okay, either I have to do that, sell everything and just start walking, or nothing. And if I don't have to do that, then, well, I, I can just call the shots. I can still be in charge. It's a very clever way of maintaining control of our own lives. It's a very clever way of saying, well, I, I'm not called to do that crazy thing, so I'll just kind of stay over here and, and mind my own business and do my own thing. But friends, disciples are not self-determined. They, they follow 
their leader. There is a third way. It's not just one extreme or the other. There is a middle way. It is the way of Jesus, and it means following Jesus everywhere you are in every part of this life. And so the question is, are you willing to be led? Are you willing to be led? Friends, the struggle is real. I know the struggle is real. I feel it every day, and, and maybe you do too. And the struggle is this. Who's in charge of your life? Is it you? Are you in charge? Or is Jesus in charge of your life? And we wrestle with that every day, don't we? We wrestle with how much we hold on to or let go of control of our lives. Imagine with me for a moment if every person in this church completely turned over control of their lives to Jesus. Imagine what we could accomplish as a church. Imagine in your life, in my life, imagine if you and I gave over 100% control of our lives over to Jesus. Imagine what we could accomplish. You know, when I think about people who've done that, one of the people who comes to mind is a man named William Booth. Anybody ever heard of William Booth? Uh, a couple of you? Yeah, okay. So you certainly have heard of his accomplishments because William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. And so uh, some years ago in London, England, he and, and some people of God got together and, and they decided they were going to offer food and clothing and shelter and the hope of Jesus to people in need in their city. So take a moment with me to appreciate the impact that William Booth has had on this world. As of this year, the Salvation Army operates uh, almost 500 homeless shelters, over 300 drug rehabilitation programs, over 200 children's homes, 160 homes for the elderly, 52 mobile units serving the armed forces, and 30 hospitals. They have over 14,000 churches, and they have touched the lives of untold millions of people around the world because of their generosity and because of their desire to care for the least people in their communities. At one time, William Booth was asked, how did you do that? How did you make such an incredible impact? And this is what he said. I'll tell you the secret. God has had all that there was of me. He said, there have been men and women with greater brains than I have, even with greater opportunities than I have had. But from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and I caught a vision of what Jesus could do with me, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all that there was of William Booth. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart all the power of my will and all the influence of my life. So friends, put yourself to the William Booth test. Does God have all that there is of you? Does God have all that there is of you? Or do you, like most of us, kind of hold a few things back and say, well, God, I'll give you this here, but don't touch this, please, because this is my own personal pet thing. This is my favorite sin. This is my most comfortable way of being that I'm not willing to change. This is my, uh, this is my prayer just for me. This is my money. I'm going to spend it on what I want. Or, or are we willing to turn it all over and let God have everything that is who we are? Are you willing to be led? Are you willing to sit on the back seat of the bike? See, friends, there's a reason that we belong on the back seat and, and that Jesus belongs on the front. Do you realize that? Okay, there's a reason. You and I belong on the back seat. 
Why? Because when we're on the front seat, it doesn't turn out that good. When we're on the front seat, we wreck. We wreck our lives. We, we wreck the bike that is our life. Uh, our, we cannot see the future. Our vision is not as good as Jesus' vision. So we belong on the back. But Jesus also has earned a spot on the front of your bike. And I know some of us think, well, I'll, I'll do Jesus a favor. You know, I'll, be, I'll be nice for once. I'll give him a turn on the front. No, no, no. Don't do Jesus any favors. Uh, he's earned the spot. He has earned the spot on the front of your bike. And you know how he did that? By the cross. There's a reason that there, the cross is at the center of this room and of our worship space. There's a reason that the cross is at the center of the story of the gospel and of your life and of my life. Because Jesus is the only one who is willing and able to trade his life for yours. He's the only one. He's the only one who has earned this spot on the front. But remember, he's not going to force it. He's not going to take it from you. He'll only come by invitation. Only comes by invitation. So you're invited to let Jesus be the Lord of your life. You're invited to make a commitment to him. I'm going to invite you to do that today. Today. In just a moment, we're going to have Holy Communion, and I'm going to have a prayer, and then you're going to come forward to receive the bread and the wine. And what I want you to consider is, uh, having taken that, is to come to the rail here and kneel down and make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And maybe you've already done that, and so it's time to do it again. Maybe you've never done that, and today is the time for you to come and make that commitment today for the very first time. But friends, you're invited to follow Jesus. What else would you rather do with your life? He has such good things in store for you, but you've got to be willing to sit on the back and let Him lead from the front. Let's pray together.